Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. First of all, let me wish all of our listeners a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And thanks, as always, for tuning to the show, leaving reviews, and sending emails. As we wrap up the year, I want to thank the team here at City Journal itself, my fellow editors, Seth Barron, Paul Beston, Steve Malanga, the newest member of our crew, Dan Kennelly, our wonderful production people, Lisa Webb, Karen Marston, Jay Rafino, and Aaron Ricks, who produces the 10 Blocks podcast you're listening to. This is our fifth year of doing the podcast, and it wouldn't be possible without our network of writers and guests that we feature on the show. To name just a few of the folks who showed up in 2020, Chris Rufo, one of our regular writers, who's really had a breakout year. He joined us a few times to discuss the anarchy in Seattle over the summer. He's located in Seattle. Critical race theory and other subjects. Uh, Coleman Hughes and Ralph Manguel, who had a powerful discussion on crime and race in the aftermath of the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis. Our interview with Heather McDonald was one of our most popular episodes this year uh, on the, quote, and her term, frightening breakdown in law and order in many American cities that we've seen. And Seth Barron and Nicole Gelinas, who've regularly discussed New York's handling of the coronavirus outbreak and its impact on New York City. In closing, if you're feeling generous this holiday season, I urge you to consider supporting the Manhattan Institute and City Journal. To do that, you can visit Manhattan hyphen institute dot org slash donate. That's Manhattan hyphen institute dot org slash donate. We'll have a link to it in our description. And there you can find more information about how to support us. A $250 donation will get you a complimentary subscription to City Journal for a year. If you've already donated on behalf of all of the folks here at MI and CJ, thanks for your support. And I hope you'll continue as we enter the new year. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Joining me in the studio is John Tierney. You can follow him on Twitter at John Tierney NYC. John is a contributing editor at City Journal. And before joining us, he was a reporter and columnist for the New York Times. He's also a best selling author. But we were eager to get him on the podcast to discuss his latest essay for City Journal which is in our winter 2020 issue called The Perverse Panic Over Plastic. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. So to start, I want to remind our listeners that you've been studying question of recycling uh, and environmentalism in America for decades now. Back in 1996, the Times published a seminal piece by you on the issue under the provocative headline, Recycling is Garbage. Uh, in recent years, it seems that the campaign against plastics has really grown. So hundreds of cities and, and now I think eight states have passed laws to ban or, regu- or you know, regulate single-use plastics, plastic bags most notably. Uh, New York's ban on plastic bags is set to go into effect very soon on March 1st. But you write in this essay that if we really cared about the environment, we'd throw our plastics into landfills and incinerators rather than recycle them, and that the plastic ban, uh, bag ban in uh, grocery stores and, and other um, retail outlets is, is going to be counterproductive. So what's the logic behind that position? 
You know, it's very strange. I mean, the plastic panic, as I call it, is really even crazier than recycling. I mean, recycling was a, was an expensive and time-consuming way to accomplish very little. But the plastic panic is not only a waste of time and money, but it's actually bad for the environment because it increases carbon emissions and it and it actually increases uh, um, ocean pollution too. The logic behind it, they're really, I mean, the basic explanation is that is that environment. Environmentalists for like 50 years just have something against plastic, and they've been looking for one excuse after another to ban it. In the 70s and 80s, they were saying that we're running out of petroleum, so we, we can't use plastic, we have to save it. Then there were things that it was causing litter or you know, clogging uh, storm drains. And lately, th the excuse has been that it's, it's a way to, to, to reduce carbon emissions, but if you look at the facts, it's the reverse. You well, know, well, uh, yes, let's stop there for a minute. Why not just shift to, say, cloth bags? Uh, the problem is is that cloth bags or any kind of reusable bag um, is much thicker. It takes a lot more energy and resources to manufacture those bags, also more energy to ship them because they're a lot heavier. So... You know, the green logic is, well, we'll just keep using these bags over and over again, and that will save it. But in the real world, people do not use their bags that often. People forget them about half the time they go to the supermarket. The typical tote bag is used only about 15 times. And so, and meanwhile, these bags have, have much bigger carbon footprints than those really thin gossamer, you know, grocery bags th that we get. And so to offset the initial carbon footprint of a cotton tote bag, you would have to use it 173 times, which nobody does. Uh, to offset, you know, people switch to paper bags. Those things have a carbon footprint that are four times the size of a plastic bag. They also take up 12, more, 12 times more room in the landfill. So basically, by banning the thin plastic bags, people end up up using thicker grocery bags. They also, because those single-use plastic bags, they're called that, but people, most people actually reuse them to, uh, uh, to line their trash bins or pick up after their pets. So people do use them more than once. And when you ban them at the grocery store, people end up buying new plastic bags to make up for that, and they buy thicker ones. So again, you're basically increasing the carbon footprint. You're adding more carbon to the atmosphere. It's true. I use my uh, plastic bags for the, the cat litter exactly. um, to take, take, take out, uh, you know, the, the clean the litter. Do that almost every day. So I would go out and buy plastic bags, I would assume, um, if, if that was not available to me. Right. And you probably would typically buy a thicker plastic bag. Those are the ones that tend to be on sale. Um, the, you know, those grocery bags are so thin. That uh, yeah, I mean, they're really marvels of engineering. The fact that you can get something that thin with so little resources in it that, that is so strong and waterproof. But isn't one of the arguments made that they don't really biodegrade and so that they stay in the landfill forever? Well, that's a good thing because you know the problem with um, in landfills is not that we don't have enough room for them, I and they take up very little room. But the the stuff. Um, as it decomposes, it releases greenhouse gases. That's what cotton and paper bags do. Now, they can trap these things, but the fact that it doesn't biodegrade means that nothing in it, the carbon, those bags are basically made of natural gas that came out of the ground. You're putting it back in the ground, so the carbon from there is not going to be, it's not going to escape into the atmosphere. It's not going to pollute the oceans. So, in, in effect, it's a very good way to dispose of it. Joining me on today's show is Christopher Rufo. Chris is a documentary filmmaker who's based in Seattle. He's the director of the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth and Poverty, 
and he's a City Journal a contributing editor. You can follow him on Twitter at RealChrisRufo. As I imagine many of our listeners have heard about, activists in Seattle protesting the police following the killing of George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis have occupied a six-block area in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle. First of all, Chris, I was hoping you could sort of give us a timeline of the events that led up to the declaration of Chaz, uh, what, and you know, really explain what led the Seattle police to abandon the East Precinct and the Seattle city government to allow what is actually a significant chunk of the city to be taken over in this fashion. Yeah, well, all of this really originated with the George Floyd protests. And over the course of time, uh, after some kind of rioting and looting in the central core of downtown Seattle, the protests really took focus around the East Precinct building in Capitol Hill. And it's important to keep in mind that Capitol Hill is the most progressive uh, neighborhood in Seattle. It elected a a city council member from the Socialist Alternative Political Party. uh, And it's been really a hub of activism and the LGBTQ community uh, for a long time. But what really set activists off was that they were trying to create a confrontation with police around the East Precinct building, uh, which is in the heart of this neighborhood. And over the course of about one week, they were battling at the barricades every night. And uh, what I think protesters were attempting to do strategically was to bait the police officers who were defending the East Precinct building into a reaction. And and they got it. They had tear gas. They had some projectiles. uh, And on the other side, the police uh, were pelted with rocks and bottles and improvised explosive devices. Uh, According to officers, they had about 45 officers uh, out on uh, leave because of injuries at this location and others. So it was a kind of pitched political or pitched uh, kind of street battle. But what changed was the political narrative. Protesters were able to uh, really take videos of the kind of aggressive uh, anti-riot techniques from police, able to kind of put that through social media and then the mainstream media and the, the political dynamic changed uh, very quickly, and the narrative of police brutality was established. And although officers were kind of defending successfully from a tactical point of view the East Precinct building, the mayor ended up making the political decision to abandon it because uh, she was rapidly losing support. Uh, city council members were calling for her resignation. Protesters were demanding that she step down. And she really had uh, such little political support and capital. Uh, she made the decision to essentially abandon the East Precinct building and hand it over to the protesters. This is Mayor Jenny Durkin, and she's been in um, in office for how long? A couple of years now, right? Uh, she's been in office for a couple of years. And, and you know her position Jeez. is an interesting one. Um, by national standards, she would be considered a a kind of progressive uh, a person, a progressive political figure. Uh, you know, she was appointed as the U.S. attorney under under the Obama administration. Um, she's been a long act- activist for uh, LGBTQ rights. But in the current political moment, all of those kind of political and identity categories that play as left wing on the national stage um, don't play in a city like Seattle, which has seen the political atmosphere shift very hard left in recent years. And Durkin is seen as a kind of 
moderate centrist um, in the language of some activists, even fascist presence. So she's found herself uh, with no allies on the right because there are just so few people on the right in Seattle. Uh, and then really kind of the, the, the target of immense hostility on the far left. So she's found herself in a, in a no-win position and, and made the decision to essentially uh, concede the territory about six blocks of territory in the densest, uh, densest, one of the densest neighborhoods in Seattle, uh, you know, representing hundreds, if not thousands of residents and small businesses. I'm Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal, and I'm excited to talk today with Heather McDonald, the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Her essay in the summer issue of City Journal, Conformity to a Lie, identified elite academic institutions as a source of this argument in places of stifling intellectual conformity. Heather, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Brian. It's an honor to be with you. Now, in your essay, which I just mentioned for City Journal's summer issue, you detail the academic response to the death at police hands of George Floyd in Minneapolis in late May, an awful incident that has set off months of urban protests many of which have become extremely violent. How has higher education addressed this period of crisis in American history? It's approached the crisis with a combination of utterly unhinged rhetoric, Brian, and very dangerous plans. College presidents competed to issue the most sweeping indictment they could possibly muster of the American polity and the American people, claiming that blacks are everywhere uh, and at all times under lethal threat of their lives. Let me give you a few examples, just briefly. Uh, Ted Ruger, who is the Dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, uh, immediately announced that we are again reminded that this country's 400 year history of racism continues to produce a clear and present danger to the bodies and lives of black people in every part of the US. Now, astute listeners will hear in this uh, echoes of Ta-Nehisi Coates, probably the most, most read author on an American campus today. Uh, Amherst College president announced that virulent anti-black racism has never not been obvious, and yet there are some people who continue to deny it. The chancellor of University of California at Los Angeles, uh, Eugene Block, announced that racism permeates every sector of society. Now, it would be a mistake, Brian, to sort of brush this off as mere boilerplate. College presidents have enormous authority. They, they set the intellectual tone for our country and they're supposed to represent our best effort at truth and disinterested knowledge, not political partisanship. These are highly partisan statements. They better damn well have empirical evidence to back up such utterly delegitimating claims about the American polity. I have argued that they do not. Uh, as far as the plans that are rolling out at record rates, I'm sent them on a daily basis by various people out in the academic world. Uh, what we're seeing happening now is the rollout of a total revision of the curriculum, college after college is, de is declaring that its very raison d'etre is to function as an anti-racist institution. How that overlaps with its mission to preserve 
and, and pass on our cultural inheritance or to generate new knowledge is a mystery to me. We have plans to inject issues of racial identity throughout the curriculum, the humanities, social sciences, and the sciences. We have more pledges built on decades of pledges to hire by quota, uh, to cast aside meritocratic standards and, and hire for professorships uh, on the basis of skin color. Why does this matter, Brian? Because uh, this stuff doesn't stay put. It leaks into the world at large. I would argue that the horrible, horrible anarchy, the riots that we've seen uh, over this summer of, of tragedy have been inspired in very large part by this sweeping academic indictment of the, of the American polity. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.